hello. This is Graphic Policy Radio, where comics and politics meet. This is your host, Elon Eleven. And this is a comics podcast for people who understand that comics aren't just about the characters they see on the page. They're about the people who put them there. Today, we'll be talking about the life and art of one of the true giants of the comics industry, someone who arguably had greater impact on U.S. comics than anybody else of his particular generation. We are talking about the late, great Neil Adams. Born in 1941, Neil Adams' art brought a detailed realism to the comics page that updated the look and feel of everything from Batman to Green Arrow and Green Lantern. He had a legendary run with Denny O'Neill on the Green Lantern, Green Arrow series, sort of subtitled Hard Traveling Heroes, where our guys in green fought in solidarity with mine workers and drug users. The series tried to show an America that reflected politics and social change in a world readers might recognize from what they saw out in the news or maybe just outside their windows. As for his work at Marvel, he's the artist who gave X-Men that last gasp of visual brilliance before the series was canceled in 1970. But his work wasn't just as an artist, it was also as a champion of his fellow artists. He fought to unionize the industry and did so much for the ability of artists to make a living in the medium that we all love. If you've ever been to a comic convention, there's no way you could have missed the guy because he had the biggest and most polished booth set up of just about anyone, and he had an opinion on everything. He was truly larger than life, and his whole industry came together to mourn his passing when he died just a few weeks ago. Joining me today to talk about his life and work are Brian Stratton. Brian is a writer, digital consultant, and co-host of the Marvel by the Month podcast, which covers each month of Marvel Comics history in chronological order. Welcome to the show. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I love being on your show. I'm excited I'm going to be back, and I'm so glad I had a good reason to bring you in. (laughs) I was like, hey, do you think you could be on a panel about Neil Adams? And you were like, could I? Tons of information. <laughs> awesome. I've been Sounds waiting like my whole life for this moment. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And also joining me is Emily C. Martin. Emily is an illustrator, comics artist, teacher, podcaster, and amateur martial artist. Emily is on Patreon as Mega Moth, as well as Twitter and uh, Mega underscore Moth on Instagram. Hey, good. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me today. Well, I always love going on your show, which is Progressively Horrified. So I'm glad I had a good reason to invite you onto mine. I'm really happy to be here um, talking about the thing I actually do as a job. Uh Hooray. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of doing it as a job, my third guest is Ramon Villalobos, is a Stockton, California-based comics artist and host of the comics podcast, Mex Flentayo. Welcome back hey. to the show. Hey, thank you. It's good to be back. How are you doing? I, I'm just so excited to have artists onto the show to talk about Neil as well, you know? I noticed that you said to the other two that you like being on their show, but when you mentioned my show... <laughs> You didn't, and I find that interesting. You know, it was really just like a torturous time in the in, in the in the salt mines. As you know, if there's one thing I don't enjoy, it's talking about really old Green Arrow comics. And I can promise you, I can promise you, I will definitely not talk about really old Green Arrow comics even for a moment on today's show. So I clearly was miserable the entire time I was on to talk about old <laughs> Green Arrow comics. So yes, folks should totally listen to my episode there which I believe is called The CIA Took My Baby Away, if I'm not mistaken. But you <laughs> yeah, can also listen right. to all of the amazing episodes on the show as well. They are really a pleasure. 
I think we'll start off by, I'd love to hear from each of you about how you kind of came into discovering Neil Adams' work in the first place. I know for me, it's because I literally read something somewhere that told me about the existence of hard traveling heroes. And I was like, earnest 1970s realism comic, that's for me. Uh, and I, I know that was definitely my first exposure. What, what about you, Brian? Yeah, I think Hard Traveling Heroes was probably my first exposure as well. Um, uh, pretty early on, uh, I in my comics reading life, uh, I started preferring like trade paperbacks and collections to individual issues. Um, mm-hmm. And DC was just so much better at that early on than Marvel was. Um, so they would they put out these collections, you know, like hard traveling heroes, uh, but it would feel very much like this is an event, you know, it's like Watchmen is an event, uh, dark Knight is an event. So, and there weren't a ton of those for, you know, mainstream superhero comics. So, mm. uh, and that's mostly what I was reading, you know, in my early teens. Um, so yeah. And of course, you know, the, there was also the, you know, the idea that this was important, it's socially relevant, um, you know, and, and, so I also I grew up in Vermont where there's not a lot of, uh, you know, uh, racial or ethnic diversity. So I'm like, OK, well, this this looks good to me. Um, you know, it, it felt very much like this is, you know, I, I didn't realize that, you know, it was a little clunky in some spots um, and, you know, that things had progressed in the 20 or 30 years since I read it. Um, but uh, at the time, it was really mind blowing. Um, and just seeing someone, um, you know, tackling these issues in you know however uh unsubtle a way uh it was really refreshing uh and it blew my mind as a kid yeah that sounds about right what about you meg well i have to admit that i have my my uh initial experience with neil adams is pretty much through osmosis like i was uh really into more niche comics as i was growing up but i was uh i was into x-men and Mm. it was that quality of x-men of the character diversity of the character not just the the character designs and everything but the uh the the character experience diversity that was um presented by x-men and it was definitely neil's work that most attracted me to that um and his legacy and um i mean as i've become more involved in the industry i've certainly been uh i've, I've recognized his input and his uh involvement and everything but just being in the presence of those of all of those issues because it was was really hard for me to pick up on on a lot of those um marvel dc stories when i was younger (laughs) because it was so involved i mean i was in the it was in the 90s you know and there was just so (laughs) much um so you know i was kind of in the corner um reading like sam keith stuff but i can s- definitely see the influence of neil adams on people like sam keith who are a lot more chaotic with their with their style but the mm-hmm. the textures the the style of neil adams is recognizably super influential to the, the western comic book uh visual vocabulary so i like your use of the word osmosis and i think <laughs> that that's probably true for a lot of people like his yeah. he's just everywhere yeah, while I haven't done the same kind of academic deep dives on his work as I have on some other things that are, you know, a little bit more international, like the Bandasine and, and manga and stuff like that, it's very, very obvious to me that his legacy, not just in terms of his artwork and his shapes and colors and in designs, I, well, I know that he also worked with like a lot of colorists and, and um, anchors and whatnot. It's such a really important base to the the 
iconography of Western comics. And, you know, just down to the, the kind of storyboard look of the pages and the um, a more film-related progression, story progression and story development that you see in those Neil Adams pages, mm. if that makes yeah. sense. No, definitely, definitely. What about you, Ramon? Yeah, I mean, like, uh, when I was younger, I was really into Green Lantern. I just thought he looked the coolest when I would, like, read comics. So reading comics when I'm, like, you know, 16, 17, and I'm just, like, looking on uh, the internet to see, like, what the important ones are, it's impossible not to, like, get told to read Hard Traveling Heroes. So (laughs) I did, and I honestly didn't like it that much. I didn't really get a lot out of it. I thought this is kind of like boring. He, they don't look cool in my opinion. Like at the time <laughs> I'm like 16, 17 or whatever, you know, it's not like at that point it's 2003, 2004. And I'm just like, I want nineties comics, you know? Right. right. So like I like Todd McFarlane and I don't understand that to get Todd McFarlane, you have to have Neil Adams first, you know? Yes. Mm-hmm. So, Especially like, Todd McFarlane. Wow. Yes, it's particularly a good Todd yeah. McFarlane. Yeah. And, uh, in fact, like even just in preparation to do this, I was like looking at some stuff like, you know, his dead man and mm-hmm. the green lantern stuff, which I, you know, again, like I didn't like it when I was younger, but I look at it now. I'm like, oh man, this is like so fundamentally like solid. But it, even now, like when I think about my interest in comics, it was always like the stuff right before him and right after him, not to say I don't have an appreciation for it, but mm-hmm. I, I do find it interesting that like that specific era, that specific style was always kind of like the stuff, like the bronze age stuff that -hmm. always kind of was like, eh, it's not, it's not my thing. That's not my movement, you know? But Mm -hmm. like, again, ironically, um, I'm a big fan of those comics now. So I think again, like after he passed and all this, I'm probably going to read some more Neil Adams stuff just by virtue of like, oh, I probably was wrong when I was 16 years old and I never, <laughs> I just wrote it off, you know, like there, there are certain books, like I said, like the, like the dead man stuff is like super visually sick getting into it. When I was younger, I wasn't into it. And then like <laughs> the other thing was when I was like 19, 18, 20, like just starting to start making comics and like doing art. And I would put stuff, online i kind of had like a not like a a bad run-in but like my my friend at the time did a comic with uh with our other friend and they would do like a kickstarter it was like the early days of kickstarter uh-huh. and he had commissioned neil adams son josh adams to do a cover for it and that was like the biggest deal because we're like oh fuck that guy's like in dc comics and you yeah. know, he's like the real deal wow and he told josh that uh, what i charged and josh adams was like well that guy represents everything wrong in the industry (laughs) how so i I didn't get it i was like well fuck josh adams and fuck neil adams (laughs) is it okay to curse on here yeah like you should definitely curse on here Um, okay yeah yeah so i was kind of like fuck them both and then i realized like they're probably right i was charging like 20 dollars for like a cover at the time and you know that that was before I understood like how important he was to like creator rights and everything. It's like, of course his son would be instilled with that and be told like, yeah, somebody's selling 
like art for $20 on eBay. That's the, that's antithetical to what <laughs> their belief system. And, uh, you know, I have a lot of respect for that now. Well, that's remo- amazing story. Yeah. Ramon, yeah. if it, if it makes you feel any better, uh, Mark Wade, uh, in his eulogy for Neil Adams, uh, basically talked about one of the last times he saw Neil, uh, Neil was doing the exact same thing to Wade uh, at a comic book convention saying it's like basically, you know, Wade had his booth and he was you know signing books for people. And Neil was just riding his ass saying it's like, you got to charge 20 bucks a signature. You've got to charge 20 bucks a signature. So uh, you're in good company. Neil rocks. Like I, so when I was doing a con in Sacramento, I, when, when I, when he passed, I had tweeted basically like, it's so cool that, so many people have so many stories, like personal mm. stories with this guy. Cause he traveled everywhere. He did every frick fucking con. Yeah. And he was in Sacramento and he was like across the aisle from me. And next to me, there was this dude who was like kind of a friend of mine. Like I just knew him from being like locally making comics and he had his friend helping him out. And for some reason that con was selling beers at the show. <laughs> so his friend got wasted and uh, not Neil Adams friend, this guy who was next to me mm-hmm. and he comes walking behind the booth and stumbles into my banner <gasps> and my friend's banner falls down into them. It smacks me in the back of the head. Mm. It like knocks my friend's banner completely over, like crumples it oh. and Neil sees it and he goes ballistic and he like calls security, gets the guy kicked out. Uh, starts like yelling at the dude's friend, like saying how irresponsible it was to have him there. And like Neil's like, "Are you guys okay? Is this guy bothering you?" And we're wow. like, he was like, he was like policing the whole situation. And uh, like the next day, he like checked. He's like, "I can't believe that guy. I can't believe that he would, you know, disrespect the convention like that by being drunk and all this." The guy had to come and like apologize to us when he was sober the next day. And it was that was awesome. That was like the only real. There's other stories you know but that was like the only real one where like neil was like talking to me for some reason (laughs) i love that that is amazing it's really fantastic to hear those stories because that's something as uh as a teacher um you know i teach art and i teach comics and a lot of the time i try to tell my students especially if they're at going to conventions i have students that are you know upwards of 18 and they go to conventions and have booths and they're terrified of um pricing their work more than like five dollars or two dollars or something like that and i'm like absolutely not um (laughs) Mm -hmm. and i've gotten actually i've gotten in trouble with parents who are like why are you telling my child to to you know charge for their drawings and i'm like because it's a job you know Mm -hmm. (laughs) like um these parents out there that are that are trying to rationalize how their kids are going to get money for you know drawing and then they turn around and say this but i mean it's just really nice to know that like there is that place has been there there's that place for that in comics and you know it's good to have a comics dad um oh yeah so that was like literally like yeah josh's mm-hmm. dad was literally his comics dad yeah <laughs> which is mm-hmm. which is cool and i've met josh you know me and josh like we're friendly and everything it's just it was a funny thing where like just by virtue of like second third hand like i heard that i was everything that was wrong with the industry and i still hear that from other people for other reasons <laughs> in, a direction. in a direction where we're like you know what fuck you but yeah, yeah. that's amazing sometimes people are right about that when they say that about me you know I, 
Not lately, but, <laughs> but, no, but, I, uh, I, I, but I get it from Neil. Yeah, I, well, you know, the, the big thing about Neil and his creator rights and, you know, the, the artist rights and everything is the context of when he came into comics was so fascinating. I was just reading um, an interview that he had done with Will Eisner. I have this book called Shop Talk, and it's got all these different, like, interviews that Eisner did with, like, contemporaries. And he had one with, with Neil Adams from, like, 1983. And he was talking to him about how he got into comics and like, you know, what, what it was like. And he said he got in in 1959, he started working at Archie's comics, but he got in after the sort of collapse of the job market where like, mm -hmm. you know, the worth after, of, you know, yeah. After all yeah, that, the, the Senate yeah. hearings. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's like, it obliterated the amount of jobs that comic artists had. So like, basically he started working for an ad agency doing comics. He did like a couple like Archie things or whatever, but he was really talented and he ended up finding his way into doing advertising comics where he got paid a ton of money. And the thing is he liked comic books, you know? So he mm -hmm. always wanted to go back, but then by the time he got back, he was so used to a different industry advertising. Mm -hmm. So he got into comics and he was like, it's medieval or pri whatever. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He was like, it was fucked. It was like barbaric. Yeah. Like the work for hire agreements were terrible. Like there was no, it was, they were throwing away people's art. It was all the stuff that he eventually fixed, but he got into it after he had already made money and like been in a real industry where, you know, people had rights and everything. And so he basically was like, well, I don't, I like this medium. I want to improve it in the ways that I had it in this other medium. And that sort of became the, the, the working like guidelines of how he fixed the industry and like the little ways that he did, you know, I, I think the sad part about his legacy is he never got the ball to the finish line where he wanted it to for like mm -hmm. a number of reasons. Right. But mm -hmm. I, I found it really interesting of the context of how he, how he's began making those changes. Brian, do you want to talk a bit about the 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 uh, worker organized worker? I mean, <laughs> artists are fucking workers, but yeah, the worker yeah, yeah. organizing history from Neil. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, and I mean, I I'm not the deep dive expert on this um, that probably some other people are, but um, I mean, just be able to speak to some of the things that he was able to do. I mean, first of all, Ramon's absolutely right. Like, uh, I mean, the one of the things that lit the fire under Neil Adams to really rehabilitate uh, the way that comics creators were taken care of um, was the fact that he had had experience in another industry in, in a advertising industry, which, you know, can be creative, creatively deadening, but is extremely lucrative. Um, and he had the confidence, you know, he, he came back into comics with the confidence to know that, look, I can throw myself at this. And if it doesn't work out, I know I can make my money somewhere else. Um, and, you know, he was trying to convince a lot of people who had spent their whole careers up until that point only doing comics, you know, like as as brilliant and gifted and prolific uh, an artist as Jack Kirby was like he had basically only ever done comics and he had spent his entire career getting kicked around by one publisher or another um, mm -hmm. and and just taken advantage of horribly. Um, and, and he's just, you know, one of literally hundreds of guys in exactly the same situation. Um, mm -hmm. and Adams, he didn't, he was the first of a new generation. Like he didn't really 
he he was not of the you know the golden age silver age um he had grown up on those books um and i think to some degree he probably looked at you know some how some of those guys were doing later in their careers as sort of you know the ghost of christmas yet to come um yeah. and you know he's just like i'm i'm not going to do this so i mean a couple of the things that he did do, um, especially early on in his career, um, he worked for both Marvel and DC under his own name, um, which he was one of the only artists uh, to do that. Um, really, one of the only creators to do it. Um, he, uh, it, we, it, on our Marvel by the Month podcast, we've read you know basically every Marvel superhero comic since August 1961 up to about mid 1971 right now, and so it's you've amazing. got. Yeah. <laughs> it's 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 a lot uh, i'll just put it that way um but uh but you have guys like you know gene colon coming in first under a fake name um you have like mike esposito who by this point is is used like five different identities um between marvel and dc um and you've got uh gil kane when he first comes to marvel uh works under uh, an assumed name um and so this was uh it was very common to do um, you know, Marvel had the work, but they didn't pay super well. DC paid better, but were very territorial. Um, and so, you know, these guys would have to like moonlight, uh, under different names. Neil was just like, no, I'm Neil Adams and I'm going to be Neil Adams at Marvel. And I'm going to be Neil Adams at DC. And I mean, you know, to be fair also, there's no concealing who this artist is, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. it's like he yeah. could have find whatever he wanted to, but it would be immediately obvious that Neil Adams is drawing this, but he really helped to, you know, to just open the floodgates of you know folks being able to go back and forth between uh both companies with a little bit more freedom um so that i think was one of the the really early things uh that he did to to improve the industry in that way i remember seeing something that i think zach Rabaroff posted when neil died that said at the first comics association meeting yeah. So uh, at the time, uh, Stanley and Carmine Infantino uh, wanted to start up something called the Academy of Comic Book Arts, which would, would have been like, I believe it's the Academy of Motion Pictures, uh, mm -hmm. uh, which is, you know, what puts on the Oscars. And, you know, it's it's the glitz and the glamour and the red carpet and the celebration of the medium. And basically, it, it's a giant promotional organization, you know, to, to sell the medium to the public. Mm -hmm. It's initially set up where... Um, Stanley and Neil Adams are going to be the, the two driving forces. Cause you know, there's, there's no better promo man than Stanley. Um, and you know, Neil <laughs> Adams was the, the hottest artist in comics at the time. And also, you know, had a lot of opinions and, and was absolutely willing to, to put himself out there. So Stan comes in with all these ideas about, we're going to have these gala events. We're going to do, uh, you know, red carpet things for, you know, to promote comics and comics creators and all that. And Neil's like, yeah, and here's what we're going to do around standardized uh, increasing page rates for everyone who works in comics. And we're going to start uh, offering folks pensions and we're going <laughs> to do this and that and the other thing. And Stan is like, he was just horrified. Like, this is exactly <laughs> not what he signed up for. Um, Can I read the, yes, uh, the actual <laughs> words I found from <laughs> yes. Stan, I believe? Please. Oh, my God. Un Unfortunately, Neil Adams, whose work I respect greatly, he's one of the geniuses of the business, wanted to turn the damn thing into a union. At these meetings, Neil would get up on and start talking about pay raises, benefits, and ownership for the artists. I remember saying to him at the gathering, I'm going to stop doing my accent, but I feel it in my soul. <laughs> I remember saying to him at, into the gathering in general that he might as well be 
right in everything he said, but this was the wrong forum for that sort of discussion. They don't discuss those matters at the television academy. That's the kind of stuff you discuss in a union meeting. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. (laughs) And Stan is 100% right. And he was 100% wrong. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, because there's not, there wasn't really like, where do you start with that? Yeah. You have to start somewhere and someone has to stand up and say like, look, this is wrong. Mm -hmm. I think that that's that's so important because even now uh, artists are struggling, you know, and oh, now yeah. there's an organizing campaign that Seven Seas Publishing is uh, unionizing with my old work at CWA. Oh, yeah. Workers of America. Really excited. Hoping I can have someone from the campaign on the show soon. Um, but yeah, exactly. Like this is very much alive right now. You know, the image image work like office staff, you know, not like the creators who are making the uh, drawing of them and stuff like that. But the office staff are are trying to unionize as well and there's a lot happening yeah yeah i find the the image thing so interesting because it really shows the difference between like what neil tried to accomplish with the guild and the way that sort of like independent spirit like was sort of bastardized and turned into like this capitalist thing where image the image revolution it's like what everybody sort of like champions is like this is creators like doing it for themselves. But I always had to say like creator rights and worker rights are not the same thing Yeah, because image, image comics, what their goal is, is to make like a handful of billionaires and what, or millionaires rather, you know, billionaires yeah. crazy, yeah. but, but you know, or hundred thousand years even, <laughs> but, yeah. but Neil wanted to like, you know, rise all boats, you know, like he wasn't interested in, in, having one or two very rich people, which is what sort of took, took form after him. And I think ironically, as much as like people say, Oh, like, you know, Marvel and DC hated that. I'm sure that like in retrospect, they probably prefer it to the alternative, which would have been all those guys deciding let's unionize. Right. Mm -hmm. Like if Jim Lee, Rob Liefeld, all the biggest names, instead of making their own company where they could all become privately wealthy, if they all decided Let's just band together and get, and like get all the other comic artists to create a collective. It would have been it would have been a different thing, and I think that's so interesting the way the way history has sort of like worked out. Where you know now Jim Lee's in charge of DC Comics, and <laughs> Neil Adams had just been kind of doing his own thing for so long, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like even in a, the interview that I read, it, he talked about being on like a five-year hiatus from working for Marvel or DC because he was just sick of the the bullshit contracts that he was getting from them. Uh, so he was just doing like his own continuity studios things up to that point for like five years. He just yeah. had like a, yeah, he just had like a five-year period where he refused to do any work with them, which I think is awesome. Do folks know much about continuity studios? Because I admit that I do not. I don't as far as I know. I mean... Um, yeah, I mean, it was, it it was just basically, I mean, it was a small comics studio that Neil, uh, founded, yeah, basically as an alternative, uh, to the big two at the time. But I mean, really, I believe what they wound up doing a lot of was like advertising work and advertorial work. Mm. Um, yeah, the studios itself was like a place where people went and worked Yeah, and they created content like like you said like advertising work like it was basically like what he had been making money on before he came into comics like or you know 
the big two publishing at that time, but uh, like the stuff that he did, he was more interested in packaging books yeah, and not like floppy. So he would go into business with other companies, like other publishers thing, like Pacific was the main one and they would put out like single issues and then he would put out the packaging of like a graphic novel. Although like, you know, that was not like a thing back then, but it started becoming a thing. And he saw that and was also pissed about that Yeah, (laughs) because they were starting to package like his old work, like green lantern, green arrow. And he was like, what the fuck? Like they're re they're just going to resell this stuff. I'm not getting paid twice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that was like a whole other, a whole other thing. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, coming back to his work in the advertising industry, I think, you know, people really cite that not just as a place where he got a sense that like another world was possible as an artist, but it also, I think, kind of moved him visually in a direction that was really distinct from what most comics looked like at the time. Um, I think that with advertising, a lot of the art he was doing was probably aimed at older people. And so the visual approach was one that was going to be more to the aesthetics of an adult who perhaps value different things in their drawings than a younger person might. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, well, I'd sort of hazard to say, um, I'm not familiar familiar with Neil Adams's work prior to like him coming on to like DC basically um, and Marvel, but uh, like, I don't know his Archie stuff. I, I, I don't really know what it looked like before he worked in the Archie stuff just looked like Archie stuff. Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. so it's like, yeah, like he became his own, like it's, it, it became his, his own style, like through that. Yeah. The, the, I think the interesting thing to note too, is when he started, when that, when that style that he's known for, like the sort of long, longer figures, you know, m- more muscular, like twisting bodies, like hands and f- to the camera and all that shit. When all that started happening, there was also like a big technology leap in just the world, right? So it was easier to get photographs, which he worked, which he worked from, mm. and it was easier to do like photo stats and, uh, you know, do all this, all this stuff that artists previously didn't have access to. And it was That's an interesting point. part of that conversation with Will Eisner, where they're like, <laughs> they're kind of arguing because Will Eisner had, was teaching. And he told his students, like, don't ever use photographs. Like, using photographs is bullshit. That's not real cartooning. Real cartooning is drawing it on the page, right? Mm-hmm. Which I agree with. <laughs> but, but I'm old school like that. And, uh, you know, Neil Adams was like, fuck that. Use photographs. Like, use whatever tools you need to make the art that you want to make. And that's your process. And, you know, he didn't have the same purity, I think for the cartooning and the traditions that a guy like Will Eisner had and Will Eisner's generation had. And all those guys came from a generation where it was about making art that was like, it was content. You had to put it out on a very strict deadline as cheap as possible, you Mm -hmm. know, like just get it done. And Neil Adams came at a time where if you started making a little bit more money, you could spend a little bit more time. You didn't have to follow those old traditions. And you can use new tech technological advancements. Yeah. yeah. You cannot break the Kirby barrier, as it were, which is the uh, most number of comics pages created in one day by one human <laughs> being. You can't break the Kirby barrier if you're doing Neil Adams art. There's just so much detail 
and sketchiness and fine pencil work. It's just not possible. And you, you can't, but you also can't make it if printing is like making things be blocky. Like it's just, it's right. It's but the, the thing of, about Kirby yeah. too, is like all the, the stuff that people like about his style, all the, all those, like, you know, the blockiness, all that, that's more, I think of a, a, a function of, he had to get it done on time mm-hmm. Yeah, and he had to like, he just had to move as fast as possible. So it was about creating the most sort of like efficient comics that he could. It happened to be that those looked amazing and all Mm -hmm. that, but that was not in vogue with what Neil Adams was doing. Like that wasn't the same thing at all, you know? So that, that seems like an artifact of also that, uh, the industry standard in terms of, um, the industry economy, right. Where like, if you're not being paid very much per page, you have to just make more stuff. Yes. Um, and, you know, and and Kirby was working with that, you know, so there was this whole, the cartoony, like the quick hand, the truncated shapes and, and the exaggerations and everything um, became essential to actually create enough work to get paid to live, you know? Um, and I think now we're in a time where like, things are even more cartoon than ever before. And I really view it as a product of labor and not having enough time to mm-hmm. actually do anything more detailed. Yeah. Well, uh, also, well, there's, there's also a lot of um, different styles going on. And I feel like there's also, there's, I don't want to say it's like a swan song, but there's certainly a, a desperation to cling to those old ideas. Um, not to say that they're invalid, but like there's a, there's a traditional comics idea that is still, pervasive in um the industry at least uh, you know the american comics industry whereas now the um the self-publishing market is starting to boom you know Mm -hmm. and and all these companies are trying to figure out what to do about that you know and they're they're like they're struggling um and you have a lot of these uh power dynamics shifting with disney coming in and just sitting on stuff and squashing all of it um but now with with self-publishing there's more technology that is not necessarily uh contributing to the amount of detail of style or whatever but people are using you know digital uh media to create stuff that you couldn't create with Mm -hmm. um i mean like quickly at least you know these kind of styles that you see from that are very recognizably from procreate or you know clip studio or something like that where people can make beautiful work um but they're also making it their own work at their own pace and i think that makes a a huge difference um and i don't think that that would have been possible without uh neil adams either without that that artist recognition Um, right and without and without him showing that you could make something that looked very different and that people would still like it yeah Yeah. he he kind of broke house styles which was Mm -hmm. also like an innovation that I, I think he he gets credit for you know really having this unique and dynamic style that you know that that really kind of changed comics. But you know the other side of that is like he really did break house styles. He he you know DC in particular had a very rigid house style, and Neil is just like I'm just going to Neil Adams all over the place. One thing that I noticed doing some of my episode prep was there's a lot of pages that he did that have extremely they have layouts that you would identify as being either very steranko 
or very Kirby. Mm-hmm. And the ca- figures in them are just like completely freaking different. So it's yeah. like, it's this just really intense juxtaposition of these two contrasting styles. And it's it's really unique. Yeah, it's, I mean, we've, we've said on Marvel by the Month several times, like it, Neil Adams is, is, it's when the Bronze Age started. Like mm-hmm. he yeah. shows up and it's like a bomb goes off. Um, everything just changes. Uh, it, and he gets to do a lot of it at Marvel because like I think Marvel has this reputation um as you know Kirby's style is the house style but like the early days are actually a lot more artistically diverse than I think we remember them as being um just cuz it really was like Gene Colan looks very very different from Jack Kirby who looks mm-hmm. very different from John Buscema who looks you know different from from obviously Neil Adams um yeah, that's. I mean, Marvel's where Jim Stranko got a chance to do his thing, you know. So uh, there was a, a tolerance for, hey, why don't you just you know come on in here and go crazy? And he gets the shot to do X Men for eight issues or whatever. And I mean, the stuff he does in X Men is just like, I mean, it, it saved the book from outright cancellation. I mean, it it wound up going into cold storage, you know, and becoming a reprint book for five years. But you know, he generated enough excitement for this absolute failure of a book <laughs> that <laughs> that it resurrected it enough and kept it on life support until you know len ween and and dave cockram and and chris claremont could come along five years later and and do something interesting with it well one of the things that just struck me the most that people were talking about when neil died was they were uh, i think it was it was yeah anthony Oliveria posted a tweet that had a picture of the living pharaohs stealing um Alex Summers's powers mm-hmm. uh, as drawn by, I think it was Hecht, I want to say. And then <laughs> next to it was the same exact scene as drawn by Neil Adams. And it's yeah. like, these are from different planets. And one of these is super 60s. And I totally dig super 60s. Sure. And the other one of these is super 70s. And I totally dig yeah. it too. It's just like, it just it's the same scene and it's just entirely different. Yeah. I remember when I first got into like uh, Grant Morrison I'd read an interview that they did where they talked about like Batman and how they wanted to have like one unified Batman where like all the previous Batman iterations existed at once. And the big one that they referenced that always made me laugh was the Neil Adams seventies bare chested love God. (laughs) And like, I remember looking at, comics with my buddy craig like the covers and like i said he and i both were like super into 60s stuff and then when you get to neil adams it is like like you said like a bomb goes off or like that the like sort of you know i, w- I don't want to say like overweight but like kind of puffy batman just completely dies and now he's like <laughs> jacked as shit he's yeah. like you know there's a batman that would like fuck Oh, that <laughs> Batman would never do that. Well, that, he, that I could absolutely get it. That. Yeah. yeah. Whereas yeah, previously, it's fucks. like it would be weird to think. It'd be like thinking of your parents fucking. But this is like <laughs> when you see an old picture and you're like, oh, my parents were hot. <laughs> you know, I have to say, and I think this is an important lesson for people, that one of the reasons that I think people characterize Neil Adams' figures in particular as being hot is that his people are drawn like humans who exist in the real world. Now they're idealized, 
you know, like most people do not have that muscle to fat ratio as that's not saying that's the ideal for everybody, but that's a, a common ideal yeah. for, uh, as, as a spouse by Hollywood and many other things. Um, but they are like a body that a human could have. Mm -hmm. And then like later you get to this sort of like Rob Liefeld thing where I know we have different opinions of Liefeld here where, um, but where it's like those muscles aren't on a human and I <laughs> just don't find that hot. And it's okay. I don't have to find things hot. That's totally fine. But I don't. It's just a fact. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, do you think that that, that realism that like Neil Adams certainly added realism, not just with his figures, but with his layout and his staging. And do you think that that realism contributed to comics being less for like young kids um, and, and being more about adult issues about some, you know, more heavier subjects? I, I mean, feel I have to, I, I, I'm sure everybody has an opinion. I have to jump on this. I have two thoughts. Please. So the one thought is that I think it's a problem that people associate realistic art with being for adults, even though historically that has been true. There's no reason why that needs to be true. Um, and I also think that there's a lot of people who think in comics that realistic, quote unquote, realistic art is the best art because it's the most detailed. And that's right. also not true. Like none of those are the reason why Neil Adams is amazing. Although those things do all characterize his art. But then conversely, I mean, I guess, you know, you have Neil coming to X-Men and doing his thing at about the same time you have Kirby doing new gods, but like new gods is like new gods is like, let's talk about Hitler and the Holocaust. And he's all doing it in Jack Kirby style. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I think a lot of people, but, but people don't always notice that that's what's happening, right? The Kirby style can sometimes conceal for people how brutal the subject matter of this is. And it, and it kind of makes it so that people might not quite realize that the, you're looking at like really serious art guys yeah. with the Neil Adams one, especially when he's doing the more grounded down to earth hero stories. It's obvious that this is from this world and about those political things. And that's my monologue. <laughs> no, that's, that's super valid. And also some really good points because the sort of subjective association from um, the audience, you know, like where with art um, and audience becomes something that a lot of, I feel like a lot of people in the industry are still kind of hung up on, right? Yes. Where you can't have art that's like super cartoony, you know, that for, for adults. That also becomes like, because I'm really into manga, that becomes a big uh, contention point with manga. And I've even... Um, been told to make things less manga uh when i'm working for a more kind of western associated editor it's a really interesting perception and again i don't think it needs to limit anything i think mm -hmm. you know especially look at mouse you know yeah yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. i mean uh or bone you know like bone is really accessible for a lot of people but it does get very heavy um and uh, you know, Mouse is about the Holocaust and it's, a, it's an autobiography, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, um, and it's, you know, certainly not like cutesy, but it is definitely like iconic um, yeah. and and simpler than something like a Neil Adams or a Will Eisner or, you know, something that is just full of texture. Um, but it's, texture. Yeah, that's such a good word. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, because I feel like texture is a big part of what separates the cartoony stuff from the, the you know, what people associate as being gritty, you know? And, mm -hmm. and you know, I can see how people like Rob Liefeld would take that and are like, okay, I'm going to 
add texture to everything, even if it makes no sense. Like I'm going to hatch <laughs> 15 abs um, <laughs> on this body. And, uh, you know, but people bought it. People loved it. You know, and again, you say that a lot of people have different differing opinions. I'm kind of like, sure, whatever at this point. Um, although the, the, the memes are great. I will say that. Oh, they, um, I do think I think there's something really like just visually satisfying about that level of texture. Um, yeah, I think it, 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 it tickles your brain in a way that um, like a, a more cartoony style doesn't. I mean, not that there's not, you know very strong and compelling things to a cartoony style also but but i do think that it, it was something there was a novelty to it when when neil adams brought it mm-hmm. into comics and it it really you know it coincided with marvel i i think it was overstated but um the idea that you know hey college kids are reading marvel comics um yeah yeah it, yeah i mean it certainly was happening i don't know if it was happening to the degree that stan wanted to convince us that it was happening but <laughs> um but i mean like a neil adams was perfect for that audience because if you were defensive about being 20 years old and reading comic books you know if you have bare-chested batman love god uh you know <laughs> it's like hey this is mature this batman fucks like you know mm-hmm. so like it, it like I don't know. It's it's a little bit of a fig leaf mm. uh, to to help you uh, make the case. Well, a lot of with uh, with comics, a lot of what I try to relay when I'm teaching is that a comic is a storyboard, right? You're you're putting together that movie in your mind with the pages. Um, there's a flow to it. There's a timing. There's you know everything mm-hmm. is um, essentially film that you're putting together. Uh, with a lo- with just another layer of information being the images rather than just you know words to read a book, but I try to treat comics like film, like I'm I'm setting up a shot and I'm setting up a um a space and a feeling and all this kind of stuff. And I feel like when you start looking at comics like they're a film rather than a cartoon, that really uh enhances the the accessibility or or at least the perception i think of that um when you start thinking like these could be real people these could be actors as opposed to cartoon characters right um and you know again like i don't think that that's something that is that should be limiting especially now um because of all sorts of reasons but um you know i think at the time Certainly, there's an important like when you talk about the 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 puffy Batman versus the Batman that fucks, like <laughs> there's a there's a huge new layer of relatability to that situation. If not like the character, if you're not like a big buff guy that fucks, um, you know, you may want to be, but you know that's where the idealism comes in. But um, you know, when you start thinking like, oh, these are these are human beings. I think, yeah. yeah, that definitely affects the perception. It, like you said, with the college students reading Marvel or or Batman or whatever, then that starts being a little bit more of, uh, I, I, I hate acceptable, but like, mm-hmm. you know, at the time, certainly that was, that was the problem yep. that people were having. One thing I want to talk about for sure is Neil Adams, from my research at least, looks like one of the first white mainstream comics artists to draw people of color that look like people of color and mm-hmm. not yes. racial stereotypes mm-hmm. or conversely, not like um, white people, but with a different skin color. Yes. Or, yes. And that's huge. Yes. Thank you. 
I I was thinking about that and um I I wasn't sure because I wasn't super aware of the context because I was looking at his cover the the Muhammad Ali versus Superman um and this is a huge thing in comics because you have this balance between idealism and then cartooning and then uh reality right mm-hmm. With, there's there's other ingredients there sure but um the I remember when I started working on Princeless, Jeremy's wife, Alicia, asked me, how do you feel about drawing black people? And mm-hmm. I was like, fine, you know. <laughs> um, and uh, I mean, I've, I've always been of the opinion that like the more diverse your character is not is not just the accessibility, the importance of that kind of representation and storytelling and stuff. But like, if you can diversify your character designs, why not? Right. Like that's the whole thing about creating a memorable character design. Um, But there's so many people in in comics and like historically in comics. I don't want to say right now because now it's gotten a lot better. But um, so many people who just didn't know how to draw black people. Yeah. They didn't know how to color black people. And I was Mm -hmm. really I actually looked up um, there. There was a colorist and there was an anchor on that um, on that cover. But I know enough work went into that cover. That it wasn't just like an the anchors or the colorist decision. The um, Muhammad Ali versus uh, Superman. Oh right, yeah. Because I know there was also a bunch of work that trying to get the uh, the permissions for everybody's likeness on that. Um, I mean, I I do want to say before I get too ahead of myself is that the also has drawings that are total yellow peril, racialized stereotypes of Asian people. Yes. Um, and some of those characters are heroes and some of those characters are villains. And the characters that are heroes are much less likely to be drawn as a stereotype. But that doesn't mean that any of it, any of that is okay. It's, it's right. sort of fascinating though, because he'll also then do this really sensitive artwork. It's, it's kind of all over the map. Yeah. No, that's a good point too. Because yeah, I, you know. I wouldn't say he was the first to draw realistic black people. I think uh, that's probably a. a that's probably an exaggeration. Oh yeah, no, I mean, like, there's there are definitely artists out there, but it was just seeing that in a mainstream book, comic book, a comic mm-hmm. book, yeah, and and um, you know, I mean, and that being as memorable as it is, yeah, you know, I, there's just a lot of artists I, out there. I can really only speak to you know specifically the stuff that I've done the deepest dive on, which is the early Marvels. I, I want to shout out Gene Colan as another one of those artists mm. who. Um, really early on in, in in mainstream superhero comics, uh, he not only could draw a, a diverse array of black faces, but he really liked to be able to do it, um, and he pushed to be able to do it. Um, and that's one of the reasons that uh, you know the Falcon became uh, a character in uh, Captain America, um, and mm-hmm. that for oh, yeah, that, that's a, gorgeous. Yeah, it for, actually, is gorgeous work. It's a good yeah. point. For a time, like, uh, you know, Captain America comics were set in Harlem for like six months or a year because, you know, again, Gene Colan wanted to uh, he wanted to draw black characters and he wanted to increase visual representation of black people in comics. Um, but Neil Adams was very much on that train. And I think the two of them, if I'm remembering correctly, I think they had a pretty strong professional and personal relationship. Um, I know that when Gene fell on some hard times uh, late in his life, uh, I know that Neil was instrumental in kind of looking out for him and hooking him up uh, with the hero initiative um, to, to help him out. So 
Um, so yeah, just I I just want to shout out Gene Colon. Um, but uh, <laughs> thank you. No, that's a, thank <laughs> that's you all. For the yeah, that's a good example. Sorry, Ramon. I felt like you were going to say something. Oh, I don't. I don't think so. Oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, obviously, I I would say obviously that like black artists who were doing work that was predominantly going to black audiences, of whom there are were many, um, or obviously like doing this and more nuanced and better. But uh, you know, yeah, it just it's but it did stick. It did stick out for the audience they were doing it for. It was very much though, like I mean, especially you know, mainstream superhero comics, the big five publishers. Uh, you know, it it was it was a, a white man's club. You know, uh, mm-hmm, they, yeah. there was no like we're up to 1971 in Marvel Comics right now. We have not had a black creator right. show up in the books. You know, so uh, it's it's depressing. Yeah. And now a message from friends of the show, Essie Fleenor and Sarah Century about a really cool project they're launching for Pride Month. We are coming back for the third year in a row with our extremely cool speculative anthology of all LGBTQ stories by queer and trans authors. It is called Decoded Pride. It's at decodedpride.com. And you can pick up a subscription today for only $14.99. Or if you go to any of our social media sites on Instagram or Twitter at Bitches on Comics or if you follow us on Patreon or support us over there on Patreon we have discount codes already all plugged in for you and you can get it for even cheaper so go check those out but right now you can get it for $14.99 at decodedpride.com and Sarah what is decoded? What are people going to get? You have stories of comic books you have stories of horror stories you have fantasy stories science fiction all of the things you know what speculative fiction is i don't have yeah, to stuff that's you. just even just too hard to define genre bending what's especially cool is that every story that is not a comic has a piece of art that accompanies it we hope you'll come support us and all of the amazing creators we're getting to publish this year we are absolutely ecstatic again join us at decodedpride.com Speaking of partnerships, we should talk about his work with Denny O'Neill because they partnered up. I didn't even remember this. They they did X-Men books together. This wasn't just like DC stuff. Do folks have any thoughts about like their connection or their partnership in particular? Yeah, I found it kind of funny reading some interviews. Because like I said, I'd, I'd read the one in the Eisner book and then I read some of the comics journal ones. They've been posting some, I think, since he passed. Mm. But uh one thing I really loved when I was reading it was how much real disdain he had for all comic writers, which is like a, <laughs> clearly a tradition that comic artists have had for a long time. Like, you know, he's calling them all crybabies and he's saying like, he's talking shit about Denny O'Neill and oh, God. Uh, all of them. But w- yeah, I think uh, the funniest thing about that is I think maybe Neil gets a little bit more credit than he might deserve for some of the, like the, the leftier politics in oh, those books. Sure. Like, you know, sure. he was not the one pushing that. And there's a lot of examples that he had in these interviews where he's like, I don't really agree with that. It's like, we have our baseline, like injustice is injustice. But like, you know, some of the things he felt like, uh, one specific example was, um, there was a, there was some issue with, with, uh, with like a plane manufacturer or something. Um, it's like a super train STT. I think, um, I don't know too much about it. They were talking about it. Like, of course everyone would know about it. I don't, this. I was just rereading this and uh, this is not drawing, <laughs> but okay, but, uh, go ahead. Yeah. He was talking about like when, when he, 
when like Neil was against or Denny was against it completely, like all the sort of like lefties at that time were like, they were like down with that. Like it needs to stop. Like they were boycotting, they're doing all the shit. And Neil Adams's approach was always much more pragmatic of like, well, how can we give them an alternative plan that then they could, you know, so where they could get the planes that they want. And then we could like, you know, do like be anti-pollution in the same way. Like I think he was, He's much more of like a cap and trade guy, I think. Yeah. Than anything. <laughs> like, he was always oh seeking. He was always seeking this sort of capitalist compromise to to like a. If if he had leftist ideals, it was always in the context of like, well, how can we put this hand in hand with business? You know. Yeah. And I, I think that's an interesting. I think that's interesting because, like, I think to his core, he was always just like a businessman. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And. That's totally fine, whatever. But I, I think, uh, like when you think about the hard traveling heroes, you think, oh, both of these guys must have been totally down. And like Neil was like down on some link, but I think a lot of the Hal Jordan attitudes were <laughs> were Neil's attitudes, <laughs> and that was how Danny and him would have these arguments <laughs> I see on it. the page. Yeah. Oh, very much. And to be clear, I mean Danny O'Neill is like almost nothing about how he talks about these social struggles is how anybody would write about it in the year 2022. Right. Yeah. Yeah. These are not the current or even, these certainly were not the the radical thinkers of the time. This is not Francis. This is not, you know, but like, um, but the intent is very clear of, mm. you know, what he's trying to say and do. Yeah. I, I think yeah. this is a little bit of a tangent, but I think one of my favorite Denny O'Neill uh, anecdotes is um, like fairly early on in his career, he got uh, partnered up with uh, Steve Ditko when Ditko <laughs> came to, um, to DC oh and Ditko is doing question stories. You know, I, yeah. He's, you know, he's, he's created the character. Um, and so he's got like a really clear idea of what he wants these to be, but then Denny's doing the script for them. Um, so like the question, just despite <laughs> Steve Ditko's best attempts, just winds up being this you know bleeding heart, uh, you know liberal, you know progressive crime fighter, um, which is you know there's what's in the art, and then there's what's in the word balloons. And yeah. It's just a really funny tension. That's yeah, what I was going to say. There was another example of of that like sort of a friction where uh, there was an issue that was very specifically referencing the Chicago seven yeah. and uh, of green lantern, green arrow. Yeah. And you know, it's sympathetic to them because Daniel Neil wrote it and uh, he was asked about it. Neil was, and Neil was like, yeah, I mean, I think the trial was wrong. I don't really agree with them on what they were fighting for, <laughs> but I think the trial was the, was the bad. It was mishandled. The trial was mishandled. You know, I think that's the, that to me is funny that, you know, you had the artist and the writer and, you know, even back then they didn't like each other. <laughs> well, you know, what's interesting about that issue is in the comic, the art as you know, I don't know who had this suggestion, if it was Denny or, or Adams, but um, it, the, the show trial is being put on by robots. So yeah. there's this level of remove from the real world Chicago seven trial by having it be in space and the like the judges well one of the courts is like the 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 guard the guardians at oa certainly are doing that so you got these little blue guy aliens who are like that and then you have another show trial in the comic which is all about these like robot dudes Mm -hmm. which seems like maybe a way for them to have some additional space from the reality while still commenting on it 
Yeah, but no, but it was it was pretty specifically like that's what it was about, which was yeah. cool. Yeah, I, I think that I think that stuff is cool. I think like you know Neil talked about uh, when they started that in the in the Eisner conversation. He's pretty proud of he's pretty proud of that book. Like he keeps bringing it up to Will Eisner. Oh, check this out. You you'll like this because <laughs> you know Will Eisner was writing comics that were about real stuff. You know, landlords, racism. Like, do you have any uh, feelings about the famous panel where the elderly black man confronts Hal Jordan and Ollie about how Hal hasn't done shit for black people? I mean, yeah, I I think that's sort of the kickstart. That's like the you know, that's how they kickstarted that thing. But uh, what I was gonna say was, um, Neil was so proud of it because they he kind of felt like him and Daniel Neil were getting away with something. Like he said that DC editorial was such a mess <laughs> that, you know, they had their guy that they were working with and they were going to cancel that book. So they just like him and Daniel Neal kind of went to DC and said, can we just do this? And I think initially Gil Kane was going to draw it, <laughs> but they just like, can we do it instead? And they wanted to infuse politics and like real world stuff into the books. And they, they even said like, if if they had got called on it, they were just going to say, Oh, we're just doing what Marvel's doing. Yeah. You know, making it relatable to young people. And, uh, I thought, you know, that's, that's pretty, it was pretty savvy of, you know, now I've worked a lot in mainstream comics, you know, and I've been fortunate enough to work on stuff that has a political bent to it. Yeah. Um, but more comics than not have none. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what, personally for me makes comics kind of uninterest like the mainstream comics and really like most comics uninteresting is that none of them really have a point of view about the world yeah and i think it was as much as people herald that like you know early marvel stuff and that hard traveling hero stuff like the the sad truth is i think it became more viable for the companies to publish stuff without it and that's kind of, that's kind of sad because I feel like, you know, if you're not trying, if you're not saying anything about the world and what's the point of making those kind of stories, you know? Yeah. yeah. Well, it's, I mean, <laughs> the point of making those kind of stories is to generate intellectual property for movies, um, apparently yeah. at this point, but well, no, yeah. I, yeah. yeah, I, I think you're, you're absolutely right. And I think it, it speaks to sort of like, you know, the progressive desperation of mainstream comics publishing, which is that, you know, as they see the market get smaller and smaller, a lot of times their impulse is, well, let's not do anything to upset the people we have left, you know, right. where it's like, yeah. I don't know if that's the right answer, but, um, but what do I know? <laughs> that's the world that they kind of came into, yes. which was that they came into a world of comics publishing where, because of those trials, everything was wiped away and all they had were superheroes that were like safe. And the only way to get interest in them was to make them relatable to people. Right. Mm -hmm. And I, I feel like some of the companies are trying to do that a little bit, but you know, I, I try to read stuff as it comes out and I feel like most comics are not saying anything. And I think, you know, like I said, that's all those people I think would the main, you know, the big writers and artists in comics, I think they would love to sort of say that they're doing the same kind of thing. 
Yeah. But it's always funny to me to read that and see that they're clearly not and they don't understand it. Yeah. Mm. I, th- I think it's also tricky to to do a comic story that has a point of view that also doesn't feel luxury. Um, and and right. I think there's a few creators who can pull it off really well. Um, but I mean, you see how some of this stuff is aged, you know, it. it yeah. Um, you, you look back on it now and you're like, oh, you know, I, I mean, if you're looking to create something that is going to stand the test of time, it's tricky to be relevant in the moment and be relevant for all time. Um, and, you know, so on one level, I understand that. I don't think it excuses what is kind of the cowardice of not at least mm-hmm. giving it a shot. Um, yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. I, well, one thing, one, I think one of the reasons why a lot of people don't, and I, you know, I, I talk about this all the time when I put up my podcast, but one of the, one of the things I've noticed so much is that a lot of, you know, mainstream, like, you know, superhero storytelling is so much about like personal trauma mm-hmm. and, and even in the context of like, you know, bigger global issues, it's always about how people feel about things personally with no broader context. So I think it's so easy for a guy, you know, like Tom King to make a story about war. And it's more about how the guy who's committing atrocities is sad about it <laughs> than it is about the the broader context in, in the war. Yeah. You know, yeah. even in the, like, it's a science fiction war or whatever, you know, yep. we all know his, his story. Sure. Right. Yeah. But, but I feel like that's the thing is like so many writers now get to get a, to get a they get to get away with it by saying like, isn't it sad that people have to deal with things in the real world? And that is, <laughs> that is the story and not the things in the real world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, it's very insightful. you know, I would rather, I would rather be dated in 10, 20 years than just nothing now, you know? Sure. Yeah. Totally. I get love it. things that are dated. Like I, I don't. Yeah, totally. And I always have, I don't, you know, I, it reminds me of something you said earlier, Ramon, when you were saying about how you didn't really get, you know, the Neil Adams art when you were younger. And I, I wonder if there's a connection between him doing realistic art of a time period that wasn't your time period versus somebody doing art that might not be as blatantly like, I know what year this was drawn, um, based mm-hmm. on the styles and the cars um, yeah. to the eyes well, of someone who might not be a history student. Hmm? I think I think for me, it was just like... Uh, the colors in it, the printing of it, the just, and I like, like I said, I like stuff before that. Cause there's yeah. a kitschiness to it. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, but that was like the beginning of the sort of realism and like the Jim Lee, if the Jim Leeification of comics, which, you know, I love, I love Rob Liefeld. <laughs> I love Mark Silvestri. I love all that shit. There's like an energy to it, but that stuff was just the beginning of it. You know? Yeah. That was like the, an, an evolutionary step that like now that I'm now that I'm a little bit removed and I like like seventies artists, like I had mentioned earlier that, you know, one of my mentors was Tony De Zuniga and all those guys. I like, I, I had a new appreciation for John Buscema once I realized like what he was doing, mm-hmm. but, but I do think Neil's storytelling wasn't as good as those other guys because he was trying to do like weird shit all the time. Yeah, it, you know. I mean, I think it's no coincidence also that like a lot of what we remember is uh, if you look through uh, Neil's bibliography, like it's 
for the amount of time he spent in comics, it's pretty slim actually. Mm -hmm. Um, Oh yeah. And a lot of, you know, a a lot of it is made up of just covers that he did. Um, You know, a lot of DC covers, you have some Marvel covers, but for books that he did not do the interior art on. Um, And uh, which again, I I think speaks exactly to what you're saying is that, you know, he liked to do these big, bold images and the weird things like, you know, he he didn't have as many repetitions um, of doing the storytelling beats, um, which is why, you know, I think some of his storytelling doesn't hold up as well um, as some of his contemporaries who were just, you know, they got their, <laughs> they're not just 10,000 hours, but hundred thousand hours in, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um, One of my favorite stories is like a young Frank Miller wanted to, wanted to learn from Neil Adams and Neil Adams just like told him like, you're terrible. Just give up, just fucking stop. Yeah. And, you know, but that guy is a guy who can do storytelling. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. And I, I think it's just funny that he went to Neil Adams who like, you know, Neil Adams can too. Don't get me wrong, but it's like, it's a different style. Yeah. Like, like yeah. Frank Miller wanted to do, you know, the, the weird little like cutesy storytelling techniques, you know, like, <laughs> Neil was not interested in that. Yeah. It was, and, and he was brutal with portfolio reviews. I mean, there's so many mm-hmm. artists who talk about, you know, getting that, that Neil Adams portfolio review. And it's like, just flaying them alive. Um, and you know, making them stand there while he's doing it, you know, but you know, it's also, it's like, if you came through that and you still wanted to do comics after that, you know, it's it, it, a lot of them, you know, they did stick with it and they came back and they got a better review the next time. Still pretty blunt. Um, but you know, it eventually they, they wound up, um, you know, doing all right in the industry. Um, and, 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 and talking of, of Frank Miller and, and Neil as a dad, also as a comics <laughs> dad, like, you know, when, when Miller, you know, hit his, his real dark times, um, you know, in the last decade or so, um, Neil Adams is one of the folks who, who, I mean, he, he gave him, he gave him another, uh, sort of a personal portfolio review and just, you know, <laughs> just told him is like, it's like, what the fuck are you doing? Like you, yeah. you know, you, you had everything and you're just throwing it away. I don't even recognize you. It's like, you like, you're, you, you don't exist to me basically like really gave him the tough love. Um, and it was one of the things that apparently helped to, to get Frank to take a look at where he was at and, and make some positive changes. Wow. Yeah. You know, one of the things I have a sense of, although I'm not, I might be wrong, is that Neil, in terms of portfolio critiques, was somebody who like wasn't trying to get other people's stuff to look like his. Right. Like, yeah. Was more likely to tell you to stop copying him than to say, oh, you're doing it wrong because this has a manga influence or something like that. Right. Um, Find the thing my, that's you my, and bring it out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and it's also, I mean, I think there's a certain amount of um, responsibility that the uh, the veterans take to sort of meet out the uh, the reality of the situation because mm-hmm. you have a lot of, you know, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed artists coming out. They might be big fish in a small pond and they might be like, okay, I'm going to be the next big thing. Um and, uh, you know, they, they need just a bit of a reality check and also need to know that they're going to be prepared to take criticism because, I mean, 
once you're past the portfolio review and you're talking to an editor, that's when the real pain begins. Yeah. Mm. Um, you know, what, especially if you're working for an established IP, as opposed to being like, I'm going to do my own creator own thing. Like, um, not these days. Well, I, yeah. editors, editors, they'll, every editor just says everything you do is great, frankly. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm saying like at that point, you know, especially like when you're talking in the nineties, when there's just so much shit. But, um, and you know, it, there was good shit, but that I wish actually editors were more mean like they used to be. I do. If I was an editor. <laughs> I would be so brutal to people when they, what the fuck is this? <laughs> well, I mean, I do think that I've had editing experiences where I'm like, but t- is it good? Like, do you, is there something about it that you would change? Like, you know, especially when you're working with a writer. And, um, you know, I, I haven't had this particular issue, but I've, I've known people who've had issues with writers where they turn, like people turn around and be like, oh, well, this isn't exact, this is what I wanted at all or whatever. Um, and there was no communication there, but, um, I don't think that's really the point here. It's the, the, um, uh, whether or not it's necessary, I do think that a lot of older artists will take that on and i think the people have gotten a lot more encouraging lately um because at this point like there's not much of a point of uh of grinding someone down and and you know checking them so to speak bodying you know with reality (laughs) um because there's so much out there right now um there's there's so there's such a huge audience and there is there are niche audiences out there that can propel you, you know, if you Mm. find your audience, even if it's not, um, anything that anybody's heard of, you know, there's, there's going to be, there's going to be investors in that. If you can find them, no matter what you do, um, there is probably an audience for it, you know, whether it's good or not, that's, you know, subjective, you know, it's, it's, it's an, also an interesting thing because I've, I also grew up in, I shouldn't say grew up. I was, I went to college, just kind of a growing up, um, (laughs) studying fine art and approaching comic art for a while as like, what is this saying? What does this mean? How does it change things? And while I really think that's an important thing, like, you, you know, it's important to have that gumption to a tackle, stuff in all capital letters like you know uh difficult subjects politics um social commentary whatever um you know not everything has to be like what are you saying with this you know um anyway but that's that's sort of uh it, it, there's also that tough love in the fine arts uh for sure because everybody's trying to be more um influential and or edgy than the last person um but you know i think that in terms of neil adams's comics dad uh i think it was for him it was a lot more of a tough love and like okay i want you to be ready as an artist to tackle this industry with you know your eyes open rather than you know uh getting crushed by the first roadblock right Mm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think there's like a real dedication to the professionalization of the craft. Yeah. And yeah. I think he shows how professionalism and 
solidarity can like be hand in hand and this idea that like oh unions protect lazy workers which is just like no <laughs> shut up <laughs> yeah. yeah um but i think his whole attitude really shows you that is not the case it's about respect mm-hmm. yeah uh, we haven't talked about how he helped Siegel and Schuster, which I mm. kind of want to make sure we do hit up for people so they know about it, who are the creators of Superman. Yes. Brian, do you want to take that? Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, as far as I know, um, and, and again, I'm not the historian on this, but, um, you know, DC had uh, the Superman movie coming out um, and, you know, making a lot of noise about it. It was a big deal, you know, first feature film you know in decades to you know feature a superhero um and uh you know as as the drumbeat of publicity was it was getting louder and louder and neil adams was you know basically like well you know what about the guys who actually created this character um and had it essentially stolen from them for 130 bucks um you know like i think at that point joe schuster was going blind in a tiny apartment um, somewhere in New York. Uh, Jerry Siegel had been out of the industry for years, um, you know, after getting kind of bounced around. Um, and, you know, they, they were basically not participating at all in any meaningful way um, in the success of the character, which had, you know, by that point, just made a small fortune for, for National and DC. Um, mm-hmm. And so... You know, he basically shamed him. Uh, he shamed DC into and, and, and Warner Brothers into um, actually, I don't know if they were Warner at the time, um, but he, he shamed DC Comics into into recognizing them, to giving them credit on the screen as the creators of Superman um, and to setting up, you know, what was a pretty tiny stipend at that point. I The number that sticks out in my head is like twenty thousand dollars a year uh, each, mm. but and which I think grew over time. I think DC did you know, get more generous with that. Um, but I mean, still we're not, we're talking about not even a 10th of 1% of, you know, yeah. the revenue yeah. that, that Superman has brought in for, for the company. But, um, but yeah, I mean, he, he just used, he, he, you know, he used his bully pulpit. Um, and, and he, you know, he just, and he did the same thing for, you know, Jack Kirby years later, um, when he was trying to get his art back from Marvel. So this is something, you know, he, he was a guy who was like, he was always checking in on people. He was always trying to take care of, of the folks who, uh, who he had worked with and, and who had, you know, built the industry that he obviously loved, uh, working in. So. Mm. Is there anything folks want to cover before we wrap that we haven't hit up? Um, I just want to say how fortunate I feel like I am. We are like an industry to have, like him, he was such a loud mouth. <laughs> he, was, he was like, you know, he, he was always calling himself like a maverick in these interviews, which is like pretty funny to me, but he like to have a guy who did that much be so outspoken. And sometimes I read it and I'm like, okay, how full of shit was he on this day? Cause I've heard him in other interviews where he's like very full of shit. Some interviews he's less full of shit, Sure, but I just think that like, uh, for a guy who did so much that he gave so much of his time also to just like put it out there that not really that he was doing it like, cause he wanted credit just to let people know that those are things that people should be asking for. Like yeah. just giving advice to young creators as business 
like business advice. Yeah. So like, do this, do this, do this, whatever your rate is, double it and ask for like, you know, expect to get this. But you know, like he did all that stuff and like, it would have been stuff that, you know, I would have been personally like, I wish I would have read it younger and like, you know, all this kind of advice, it trickles down from you when you enter, like, you know, especially mainstream comics, you know, when you do cons and you do all that kind of shit, like you, it's either stuff that you regret not picking up sooner or, you know, you're lucky enough to have people tell you about early on. And, you know, I think a lot of that paying it forward, uh, stuff that he had done then is like, you know, that's an invaluable, like he went back and he helped older artists who got fucked, but he also like, I really do feel like he was a guy who tried as much as he could, despite being sort of like, you know, an egomaniac Mm -hmm. (laughs) to to help out other people that were going to come after him. And I think that's like a special thing. And I think, uh, if, if anything is his legacy, I'm just glad it's that, you know, that that is the kind of mark that he left in comics. And I think that's a unique mark that's left in comics because it's a industry mostly filled with self-serving people. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, if you have that, uh, if you have that platform, if you have a platform, you know, it is, it is responsible to utilize it. If you have, you know, the spare resources, um, speaking of unions, you know, uh, I think it's, it's responsible to use that. And, you know, sometimes, especially in a, in an industry like comics, you know, any sort of entertainment industry, you have to be kind of full of shit or at least like sound full of shit in order to get people to be motivated to do stuff. I've, I hope that that doesn't perpetuate, you know, <laughs> but especially at the time, you know, that like someone has to be loud and a pain in the ass in order to affect change. Um, and thanks Neil for being a pain in a lot of people's asses. Absolutely. Um, yeah. That's powerful. Any thoughts, Brian? Yeah. Um, something uh, that I have been recommending, um, to folks, uh, since Neil's passing, um, is, is a book that, um, he helped to put out relatively recently called, uh, we spoke out comic books in the Holocaust. Um, and uh, this is uh, it's a, a joint production of Neil Adams and Raphael Madoff uh, and Craig Yeo. Um, but basically what it is, is um, it was uh, published by ID, IDW um, and it's a, a collection of about two dozen comic book stories from like the late 50s to like late 70s ish. Um, so it's kind of during this period, it you know, post-World War II, but before the Holocaust was really kind of in the popular culture. Um, and, uh, but it, it is this terrific anthology of stories, uh, the comic book stories that came out um, from a whole bunch of different publishers, um, from everyone from like literally EC Comics to Marvel to DC to, I think there's some Charlton stuff in there. Um so like, D- first of all, DC and Marvel comic stories in the same volume, which is wow. kind of amazing, but, wow. and they all touch on, um, they, they are stories that touch on elements of the Holocaust. So like some of them are, you know, like, uh, horror stories where an ex 
concentration camp guard gets his due. Um, That's and, such a good comic. Yeah. And, and uh, it's, some of them are, you know, the, the Robert Koeniger war stories um, that he mm-hmm. did for DC comics, where, you know, they're talking about the, you know, the camps uh, and, and things like that. But basically like the whole idea is that, you know, there were these comics creators, many of whom were Jewish, not all of them, but in this period, they really were using this, you know, a, a popular accessible medium to make sure that folks understood what had happened um, in the Holocaust. Uh, and, you know, the, the stories that they range broadly in, in quality and tone, um, like some of them are just not very good, uh, which also I kind of love, you know, it's just mm. like, it was just showing it's like, this is a very working class medium, you know, uh, and, and just to, to keep, this information alive and uh you know so th- there's essays separating each of them stanley writes the the uh introduction and the afterward um and it's very strange to read stan talking about something so serious and personal um mm. but uh it's it's a phenomenal book um and i really recommend you know just as a piece of like comics history and, and actual history history checking it out it's we spoke out comic books and the holocaust uh published by idw Thank you for the recommendation. That's yeah. really amazing. So remind our listeners, where can they find your work, Brian? Uh, well, you can find us, uh, I mean, on any podcatcher. Uh, it's, the podcast is called Marvel by the Month. Um, and you can find us at marvelbythemonth.com and uh, on Instagram at marvelbythemonth. Uh, well, I'm on uh, the, the Twitter and the, t- the Tumblr even, um, at Patreon and Megamoth. Um, you can look up Princeless uh, that Jeremy Whitley and I did, um, and uh, we're sort of on hiatus right now, waiting for some uh, some decisions, uh, capital D decisions to come through. Such a good series, guys. Get on it. Thank you. Thank not you. you. I'm not telling um, you to get on it. I know you're getting on it. I'm telling my <laughs> listeners. No, I'm Jeremy's saying thank on, you. Yeah. 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 Jeremy's been on the podcast before to talk about the series if you want to hear more about it. So. Yeah, and if if you're interested in what Jeremy has to say and me, um, we have a podcast called Progressively Horrified where we talk about horror movies, and Alana's on it. Yeah, uh, well, you're all invited if you guys want to come and talk hey, about thanks. horror. Yeah, um, yeah. So that's Progressively Horrified. It's Prog Horror Pod on Twitter and uh, Progressively Horrified on uh, Transistor.fm and all the podcatchers of your desires. Check out my work. I'm on um, Instagram at mega underscore moth because someone took that mega moth right out from under my feet. And <laughs> megamoth.net for a very, very old prof- portfolio online. Um, Noted. Thank you. And Ramon, where can folks keep up with your artistic and intellectual output? Well, um, at some point this year or maybe next year, my comic's going to come out and I can't, I can say it's for a bad idea comics, but I can't say what it's called, who it's with or when it'll come out, but <laughs> when it comes out, it'll be very fucking good. Very Love old it. school, all traditionally drawn, beautiful. It looks amazing. Everyone says so that's seen it. Um, I want to, and then see when it. I put out my podcast, you can check that out at Mex, uh, patreon.com slash Mexflintayo or look it up on SoundCloud, Mexflintayo. Um, it's a podcast about comic books and we talk about politics. It's a lot of deep diving, a lot of jokes. Um, yeah. Um, other than that, I don't know. 
Uh, you have a very you good go, Twitter You can follow account. me on Twitter. Yeah, thank <laughs> you. At Ramon Villalobos on Twitter. For the next couple of weeks, it's going to be very basketball heavy. <laughs> Sounds That's good. all I'm going to be talking about. That's all I've been talking about. But, you know, go on there. The people definitely just deserve to read your meta thread about Woodstock 99, if, if nothing else. Um, oh, man. Yeah. That's still pinned at the top. It's like your job to try to rehabilitate things that I don't like. And I love that about <laughs> you. <laughs> it's just amazing. Well, that was because I was like depressed and I was like, you know what? I'm going to start watching Woodstock 99. I just live tweeted it. And then like I'd done it all night. And then when I woke up, a bunch of people were like, this guy's going crazy. He's just live tweeting Woodstock 99. I was like, well, I guess now I have to just keep doing this. <laughs> this is my so life I, now. <laughs> I did it for like three days. It was and amazing. It was, yeah, it was just nonstop screenshots and jokes about the old stuff. And if you want more from Ramon, he has been on my podcast at least twice. And it was really a pleasure and like just oh, funny you. and political and a badass. So, um, an amazing artist. And an ama- <laughs> yeah, and an amazing artist. I mean, like, we, everybody, everybody loves your work. Triple your page rate. Yeah. Triple your page. <laughs> quadruple your that's page what rate. All, that's what they all say. You too. When I went to Bad Idea, it's because Marvel and DC had both been saying, we're going to give you a page rating. Well, you know, not Marvel. They never said it. But DC <laughs> said, we're going to give you a page rate increase. And they didn't. They just kept me at my Marvel rate. And it was like, I've been working in comics for like eight years. Wow. No increase. So then I was like, well, fuck it. If I'm going to get paid for this, I'm going to just write my own shit. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So I started pitching stuff in these companies, you know, Skybound, Oni Press. They were interested in the pandemic hit and they were like, fuck it. We're not going to give you any more money. We're not going to pay you to make anything. Oof. And then bad idea was like, well, what do you want? And I just told them like $600 a page. And they were like, well, no, we can't give you that, <laughs> you know, which would have been like more than double my rate. But then they gave me a lot more than what I was making. And I was like, oh, so this is how negotiating works. Yes. That very yeah, it was important awesome. story. I, now <laughs> I make a great rate and I work very little and i make more money but the the sad downside of that is my my work hasn't come out yet in like two years (laughs) but i've i've been in the lab i'm grinding that's what it's all about this is the most neil adams story that we could possibly end with i was gonna say that's beautiful yeah well neil adams is the maverick i'm the outlaw you know (laughs) i'm the next (laughs) he he lives through me now his power flows through me now you want to talk to neil Talk to me. I also got a great head of hair. Nice. That's true. <laughs> In the Neil Adams tradition. Yeah. Does, do I, do me- we need... Oh, sorry. Please. I'm just going to make the joke. Uh, do we need a Ouija board? Or is is it Ouija board optional? <laughs> just ask me anything. You would ask him. Okay, excellent. <laughs> um, well, thank you guys for joining me so much. Um, as for me, I am on Twitter a little bit too much at E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn. That's Elana underscore Brooklyn. Uh, we will also be doing a comics roundtable about the also late, great, and fully iconic George Perez, who recently died. Um, so we have not forgotten. I'm just taking a while to put these things together. I have some upcoming awesome interviews with folks releasing work this summer, and comics creators and artists. And... Uh, I would really love it if folks wanted to rate and review Graphic Policy Radio, especially on iTunes. I put a lot more work into production these days, and it means your episodes are coming out a little bit more slowly, but I like to think they sound better than ever. So now would be a great time to rank us and comment on iTunes. And as we like to say, keep it geeky.